Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. up everybody welcome to this episode of true crime and cocktails we're so glad that you're here as always i am your host lauren ash and as always i am joined by my co-hostess with the most s christy oxborough how you feeling i'm doing great how are you doing i'm happy i got back to my typical cadence that's nice i like that for you because last week i started with welcome to true crime and cocktails and it just felt weird in my mouth i would like us i would like you to do it with a different accent each week i think I should maybe true start. Crime and cocktails. You know, like I like that a lot. I like that too. It's funny because it took me a really long time to feel normal saying that because I, I was so used to either saying Unsolved Mysteries Edition or Famous Fatalities Edition. Yes. Um, it that that was like a hard transition. Was yeah. 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 I get that. But listen, I'm back in the saddle, baby. I like that. And I, yeah. I like this energy uh, because I'm going to put a task. On your plate. A task! For my enjoyment. Oh. (laughs) Now, today, the day this releases is December 13th. Sure. And on that day, 37 years ago, the movie Clue debuted. Oh, my word. So I thought it might be fun if off the top of your head, you had to do your best summary of the movie, explain it to me like I've never seen it. I have, of course, but I, I just thought it would be fun to hear you uh, hit as many points as you can. I'm also willing to time you if you'd like. I'd like the time. I was okay. going to ask if there was a timing element. Uh, there can be. And this is a damn honor. Just know that. Yeah. Would, would you like three minutes or do you want more or less? I think I need to do it in under three. Under three. Yep. Okay. Hours. Oh, we're not that kind of show. <laughs> oh. Okay. Uh, are we ready? I'm ready. Okay. Go. 
Clue is a movie based on the famous board game of the same name in which you're trying to determine who murdered Mr. Body in what room and with what weapon. And this movie does not disappoint. At the beginning, a cavalcade of different characters arrive at a very creepy house, Hill House, that's on top of a hill. Uh, It's not just a clever name. One by one they arrive, the dogs barking, snarling, uh, each of them clearly a very different character from the next. There's Professor Plum, Mr. Green, Miss Scarlet, uh, Mrs. Peacock, Mrs. White, uh, did I say Colonel Mustard? Um, And they all arrive where they're greeted by the butler, Wadsworth. I'm the butler, sir. I, I'm The butler is in charge of the, uh, the kitchen and the dining room. Uh, I'm wasting too much time up, to, up top. The point is, very soon Mr. Body comes in, and they realize that each of them have been being bribed by him because he has their secrets. They immediately get angry. Some of them try and start a fight. The door, the, the lights go out. When they come back in, oh my goodness, the gifts that they've all been given when they arrive, which are each different murder weapons, someone has used them, and Mr. Body is face down on the floor. Oh my God. He's dead. Or is he? Through a series of hijinks and uh, crazy shenanigans, this team manages to murder everyone who sets foot in the house that evening, including Mr. Body, who was not dead in that moment, but eventually is. And it is a romp and a half with three separate endings that also include the FBI, um, uh, communism, and more than anything else, everyone's willingness to cover their own ass with lies. That's right. Clue, ladies and gentlemen, a comedy romp for the ages that you're not going to regret. I didn't do what the, the task was, but I feel like I sold the shit out of it anyway. You still had a minute 13 left. Damn it. But let me say this. First of Please. all, cavalcade <laughs> blew my mind. Um, also, I don't know how to tell you this. I love that so much I'm going to request it again. <laughs> I'm going to keep an eye on the days. Yep. And if there is an anniversary of a movie, yep. Yep. oh, you bet your ass I'm going to ask you to summarize it in two minutes or less. Oh, my God. Two minute summies. They don't. <laughs> yep. So, summies is not so, short. Summies sounds like it should be worse than it is. <laughs> summies weirdly sound delicious. I don't. I, I love <laughs> Summy. Um, hey, what about this? Yeah. Sum two oh one, and you got to do it in less than two minutes and one second. Hey, like some forty one. That's I a like that. band for those who don't remember. For those who don't know. Oh, I like that. Um, it's listen, so I much feel like I missed so many details, but you know, I just got very excited. Very yeah. excited. Yeah. Well, I thought being the anniversary, you'd want to touch on it at least. 37 years, you say? Yeah. Wow. What are we doing in three years? We've got to do something to celebrate its 40th. I assume at the premiere. God willing, of the new one. Yeah, Jesus. I mean, it feels like that thing has been ongoing for a decade at this point, but... He's got a lot of work he keeps doing, so... Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, that was fun. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, what a again, gift in my life. A, a gift for you. It was a gift for me. I want to do it again. Yeah. <laughs> because I, if you think I am not dying for the day in June where I get to say it's the anniversary of speed, describe <sighs> it in under two minutes. Yeah. 201. 201. <sighs> speed. 
I know. I just oh wrote it God. down. No, face nothing off. else. I just wrote down speed. Oh. Face off, yes. The amount of times that notebook probably has the word speed written. <laughs> Many. Yeah. Oh, and I would love nothing more than to get to try and sum up face off in less than two minutes. Because if you're trying to explain that movie to someone who's never seen it, <laughs> it's yeah. wild. Oh, yeah. Like, it's good luck. Good luck. Good luck. But you know what? Mine would end up being just... And then he comes out of the plane and this gust of wind opens his coat as he's walking. He's not out of the plane. He's walking to the plane. Uh, but that's one of the hottest things I've ever seen. <laughs> it's the it's the blow of the coat. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the power in the walk. That's the cookie's energy. Yeah. That is the cage cookie's energy. Cage cookies. I like that a lot. Yeah. Where she's actually like a little unhinged. And you're terrified of her? Yeah. Like, so fucking into her, you can't oh, yeah. stand it? Like, Yep. And I think uh, Nick Cage hits that. It hits something for you, clearly. <laughs> it's uh, wild, though, because usually I'm the one who has the crush on the, the supervillain, you know? Yes, that is true. I just... Maybe that it took till then to get me to be like, I don't mind power. <laughs> I just, yeah. Yeah, there's something, I mean, I guess what other villain do I really like? Oh. Oh, I just, I love Face Off so much that I just have to, I just have to love them. Well, wait a second here. Are you telling me you can't think of any other villain character you're into? I mean, off the top of my head, no, but I've had a day, so I can't. Yeah, I think we're going to get so many. I'm going to have to come up with some sort of villain quiz and you either just say yes or no. And I think that there's going to be a lot of villain smash or pass. Yep. I like that. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess it depends on who's playing the villain also. That is also true. But you were attracted to um, Caster Troy. Yes. Not Nicolas Cage. Correct. Much like I'm attracted to Heath Ledger's Joker. Correct. But not Jared Leto's Joker. <laughs> it's oh, that is very specific. Th- it is wildly different. They're like night yeah. and day. <laughs> yeah, I get that. <laughs> That's my impression of Jared Leto as the Joker. What is he doing? What was he thinking? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> he sounds like a bird. But thank God he's going to come back and do it again. Oh, no, it's the other one that's doing that one again, isn't it? Which one? The other, other Joker one? one is coming back. Oh, yes, Joaquin. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'll say this. People are going to be like, oh, my God. Never saw it. Yeah. I saw it. Hmm. You know, like, it's just. I didn't hate it. I didn't hate it. Sure. I, I thought just, it was. I actually, I think I actually kind of liked it. But I think more than anything, my issue is, is like the background story where it was that director who was talking about how comedy's dead and. Because everyone's too PC now and all those kinds of things. And I'm just like, oh, go take a nap, sir. Take a nap. (laughs) Take a nap. Oh, I love that. Yeah. 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 I mean, I'm sure there's another (laughs) villain. I was just going to earnestly say, (laughs) I mean, really, I've I've always loved a bad boy. (laughs) Stop it. You have. Do you know what I mean by bad boy? I mean, Jake... From California Dreams because he wore 
<laughs> he wore a leather jacket. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah. 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 Well, again, this is something I look forward to, compiling this list. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. And then it's going to end. How many of them? It's I, How many are going to have me go, oh, God, he's terrifying. And then you're like, please answer the question. And yeah. I'm like, oh, yeah, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> there's there's going to be something there. But yeah. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. Listen, that's Look, that a new like task. A game, that sounds like a, a, a game I want to play. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we should call it Hulk Smasher Pass. <laughs> I don't know why. Um, I like that. Thank you very much. Now, listen, I got to ask you what you're drinking over there. I think I saw Slurpee. You did. You did. That's uh, nice. I'm doing a water and I'm doing a Slurpee. We are in a cold warning. Uh, Extreme cold. Oh. Uh, it is cold enough. I did not want to go out there, uh, but I was at a meeting within a block. And if I'm already out there and I was on my way home to come do this and I was like, well, of course I am. Yeah. And the staff knows me because I'm there almost daily. And uh, one of them said like, oh, it's quite cold out there. And I said, yeah, I almost wasn't going to come. And they did like an, <gasps> and I'm like, I know. And she's like, you know, it's bad if even you won't come here. I'm like, I know. Yeah. I said, but I, I said I was already out and this is just, uh, this is my reward. But if you think that I'm not frozen from the ground up because... I've only been home so many minutes and I haven't fully defrosted. And then I keep shoving ice in my body. I, you know what I just put together in this moment yeah. was if God forbid, obviously yeah. I don't ever want this to happen, but something you go missing. You know where I'm would know. <laughs> that's where I'm starting. When's the last time you saw her? Yeah, because you know if it was more than twenty four hours, there's a problem. <laughs> Again, I'm trying to I'm trying to build a timeline. You know what I mean? At this point, that's what I'm doing. So that's, that's th who you go to. Yeah, that's my first stop. That's my first stop. I mean, what I'd love to do is ping a cell phone, but again, I don't have that technology, and I don't know that of the police course. will let me. But of course, but what I what I'm taking this as, I need to keep up going regularly to help with the timeline if I ever go missing. That's what I'm asking of you, yes. So that means one day a week, a very specific day that week, I also need to hit McDonald's so you can go there and be like, did she come here Monday? And they're like, she did not. And it's like, she missed McDonald's Monday. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And the police, <laughs> God, the they're going to hate me. They're going to hate me so much. Because I'm going to come in and my binders are not nearly as well organized as yours. There is cheese sauce dried on them. There's a lot of papers that have had Diet Coke spilled on them. But I'm going to have a very definitive timeline through yeah. a melange of food. Oh, I the idea of doing this for the timeline, for my safety. Yes. Then it's like I will never again go, oh, I, I shouldn't have one today. I had one yesterday. I'm going to be like, for safety. It's for safety. Yeah. It's for safety. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. That's helpful for me. Yeah. People would have to get access to my phone in order, because my thing is like, has she postmated something today? I postmate something almost every day, mm, whether see? it's a breakfast burrito or whatever, you know. Sure. If you had access to my phone, that's a way to, that's a good way to figure out a timeline. See? Go into my Postmates app. See, when is the last time I made an order? This, this is good to know. Maybe this, I should just give you my login. Sure. So then, Ash goes missing. 
First thing you do, get the app going. Check and see. She hasn't ordered anything in four days. I there, I'm probably dead to be honest. (laughs) If I haven't text her, got a text from you in four days, I'm gonna know something's wrong. (laughs) If I get one in 24 hours, then I'll be like, something's weird. Sometimes, sometimes I text Christy so feverishly and furiously, (laughs) Fast and Furious. Thank you, Tokyo Drift. (laughs) That there are times where if she's you know, busy with life and can't get back to me right away. Obviously, that's more than fine. But there are times where I will go, oh, hold off. <laughs> Don't send a 15th. Let her, let her have a chance. Let her have a chance to respond to the previous 14 before you throw another round of photos on there yeah. or, you know, whatever it is. <laughs> I mean, my favorite ones are if I'm done something or it could be something as silly as I'm not getting the notifications or my phone's on silent or something stupid that I didn't realize. Um, but my favorite is when it runs a gamut of emotion. Like at first I want to come in and like, like type a ha ha, but then I'm like, but that latest thing isn't a ha ha. The first <laughs> one was a ha ha. And then we devolved. <laughs> I like the Cause yeah, you sent me one the other day that was like, "Hey, it's this great news," and I was like, "Hey!" And then you, <laughs> before I saw it, you'd sent another one that was like, "Terrible news! It didn't work out." <laughs> I know. I was like, "I know." Wow. I know. It yeah. didn't feel. Yeah, I've been just having some real trouble with scheduling, booking things, and booking things, and people falling through, and like it's just yeah, it's too much. It's too much, yeah. but uh, yeah, that was a, that was a funny one where I had messaged you, "Hey, great news! Booked the venue," and then uh, had to go back and go uh, flag on the play. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, so happy for you bringing up sports talk. Hey, that's thank nice. You. That's yeah. nice. Um, also, don't think that I don't live for. Oh, I've got twenty messages. She's going through something. Uh, I would prefer those to the series of voice notes that I send you that end with, ah, shit. And then I'm like, oh, I I didn't know that's because the new voice note thing on Apple automatically sends. Whereas before you used to stop it and go, ah, delete it and then whatever. So this one ends with me just going, and then like (laughs) stopping it. It's and then it just sent and I was like, don't send. So then I had to quickly do a second one to be like, I'm so sorry. Like, that's not what I meant. I'm like, oh, uh, so listen, it's just I, a series of my me going through my day. Being I like, love that. I love uh, it. I have a, I drive a lot. I'm, I, I live a fair distance from my workplace now. So it's always a joy for me. A series I, of I, messages. I, it's basically a one person <laughs> podcast. <laughs> it's like, here's, here's it's my, my favorite day. show. Yeah, I should start each one with like a, what's up, everybody? <laughs> no, what's up, only Lauren. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and I no. know there are going to be people who are going to be very lovely who are like, that's a show we want to hear. We want to hear your show. You don't. <laughs> I promise you. Because uh, it starts with like, I have this meeting today and I don't know what to do. And you wouldn't believe what's going on. Like, and it just goes into like everything and nothing all at the same time and 90% of the time ends with me going 
well, that's where I'm at. And then, <laughs> and then, I'm, and then I'm out. Listen, oh, I, I should love start it. ending them, Christy, out. Oh yeah, or just ksht, over. <laughs> Uh, because now I want to turn them into bits. Just never ending. Uh, listen, never I'm ending. all for it. I love a bit. I will say that the I, I did get alarmed. So this morning I woke up because I'm on this, you know, I didn't have to get up early, but it's my body's in it now. So I'm every morning if I have to if I have to be up or not, I'm like my eyes are shooting awake at like 630 or 7 o'clock. And I did wake up. I look at my phone to look at the time. Yep. And I see, ah, it's so early. And then I'm like, a text came through from Christy. 2.30 my time. 4.30 her time. Oh, God. Oh, what have I slept through? Oh, no. Oh, no. And then it was just you liking something <laughs> I had sent. But I shot up in that bed. Yeah. Shot to standing. From laying yeah. to standing. Like, oh, God, get, get your wits about you. Um, but thank goodness. When was, was she no last seen at 7-Eleven? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, if I had known the trauma it would cause, I would have waited until the next day. But I knew if I didn't in the moment, I'd forget. Of course. Because if I read a text and then it's not showing as unread anymore, I, it's going to be gone and I'll forget. But yeah, that was the beautiful sleeping peacefully. Everything was great. Woke up and my anxiety went, Ugh, you have to adult today and like go to this meeting with other adults and they might figure out you're not really an adult. Like, and it was just me laying there going, okay, what do I do? What do I do? Oh, God. And yeah, so I was up for a little bit there. But then I got back to it. But uh, listen, yeah, the two hour time difference between us yeah. is a lot, especially if I wake up to text from you in the yeah. morning. Yeah. That's bad. Because if it's... If it's like 7.30 and I'm waking up and I already have a series of texts, usually it's from the night before. But Oh, but I've had some like 3.45 a.m. wake-ups oh, working this year. There are and, ones yeah. where you, I have ones from you and I respond and you respond immediately. Yeah, like, yep. How are you awake? Oh, and I've been up for hours. That's the joke. Yeah. I've been up for yeah, hours yeah. at that point. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, listen, it's all a joy. It's all a joy to me. Uh, I had another bit. That I had thought of and has left me. So sorry. Left me. That's all right. Well, come back. something uh, I I took us away from it, but uh, what you drinking over there? Oh, just a Diet Coke. I only have one liquid, and that feels very unlike me. Huh. Now, I do have a little bit of water, but it's out of arm's reach. Oh. What am I doing? I remember what I was going to add very quickly. Sure. This all reminds me of one time I got a call from our grandmother, and uh, she was like, are you all right? And I said... Yeah, I'm fine. Why? And she's like, oh, my goodness. I just got a, I got a, uh, uh, well, we weren't calling them voicemails then, a message on the answering machine maybe or something. No, no, she got a call. That's what it was. I just got a call from you. And all I heard was was uh, rustling noises. And then I thought to myself, oh, my word, she's been taken. She's been taken and she's mashing her phone, trying to get a hold of anybody. It's dialed me. And I had to be sure that it was, that you were all right. And I was like, that. That right there, I'm realizing, is the nugget of our true crime interest. She, Her instincts yes. were the same. She's like, I answer the phone, all I hear is rustling. Guess what? They're in a car trunk. She's been taken. Yeah. <laughs> 
first of all, our grandmother has never sounded so posh. She did I, not sound that posh. You're right. I loved it. But then I had to be consistent. Oh, I, oh, I had I to be consistent. You, you made a choice and you stuck with it. I had to. And, and that's like uh, Improv 101. Well, that's, imp- yeah. I mean, that's step two after always say yes. That's yes right. and or whatever. Great job. Yes. Uh, well, John Lithgow taught me a thing or two. <laughs> <laughs> Daddy's home too. You should check of it out. Of course, it's I love um, that film. But uh, yeah, I just I was mesmerized by her accent there. Um, but yeah, oh my I wonder God. if this is going to make it to a promo with the with <laughs> with the subtitle. Lauren does flawless British accent. <laughs> yeah. Oh, probably. I could Listen, see that. I could see a- that because you know I live for it. I prefer if I can to get the promos from this opening bit because they're always more jovial. Yeah. And, and not s- potential no spoilers. spoiler alert from yep. uh, the other. But, um, oh, God, yeah. Look, I feel better because if if I, if you tell me you're going somewhere. Yeah. And I don't hear from you for hours, I'm like, well, I better check her phone's location because <sighs> he's probably throwing her body into a like into a ravine. <laughs> like I just immediately. Yeah. I my brain always goes to the worst. Always. Well, look, we were like that to begin with. Yeah. And then we've done this for almost 2 years. It's made it worse. It's yeah. worse. Yeah. Oh, it's it's bad. Like my husband had an appointment like a week or two ago. And I went out, he went to his appointment, I came back, he wasn't here and I was like, that's weird. It's been a while. Whatever. I go out to run some errands. He's still not home. Immediately, I was like, well, just wait by the door for the police, for them to come and tell you he's dead. Like, that's how bad it is. And it's I, my brain is genuinely like, oh, yeah. Like, I, I also, I, I want my brain to tell me it's fine. Calm down. But my brain course. goes, oh, no, he's likely dead. I also like, like that I just said, we've done this for almost two years. And then <laughs> immediately was like. No, Lauren, it's longer. It's been longer. It's been at least eight. Yeah, well, exactly. Now, listen, very quickly, we, we, we've prattled on, but um, you have an update about a past case. I do. Fantastic. Specifically about a case within a case sort of thing. Holy shit. Not a main case that we did. But on our Kiara Coles episode. Yes. Which is episode number 50. Well done. Uh, I spoke about some of the women of color who were missing at the time, which was September 2021, which was when that episode came out. One of the women that I mentioned was 22-year-old Akia Eggleston, who disappeared in May 2017 when she was eight months pregnant. Akia's last known communication was a text she sent a friend at 5.22 p.m. on May 3rd. She has not been seen or heard from since. But the update involves Michael Robertson, who was Akia's boyfriend and the father of her unborn baby. Apparently, the two of them met in the 90s when Robertson's grandmother used to babysit Akia as a child. They ended up reconnecting in 2016 and began dating when Akia was 21 and Robertson was 40. Oh. The day before her disappearance, Akia purchased two money orders totaling $450 and then withdrew money from multiple ATMs. She then contacted Robertson on Facebook to say, quote, I called you. I got the money order. 
Hours later, Akia attempted to withdraw cash twice from an ATM, but she was unsuccessful. Akia was also seen on security cameras, depositing the two money orders and her paycheck. She then withdrew $450. She told a bank employee that the property manager she was dealing with only takes cash. Earlier that day, Robertson had texted Akia a photo of an apartment that he wanted them to get, so he asked her to get some cash for the security deposit. However, a reverse image search of the picture he sent her showed that it did not belong to the address that he had given her. At 4 p.m., Robertson took a lift to Ikea's neighborhood, and his phone pinged in that area from 5.35 to 6.18 p.m. A telemarketer tried to call Ikea's number at 6.57. At the time, her phone, as well as Robertson's, were located in downtown Baltimore. After that, Ikea's phone was either turned off or the battery died. At the time of Ikea's disappearance, Robertson was in a relationship with another 22-year-old woman who had recently given birth to their second child. The day before she went missing, Akia posted a picture of her sonogram on Facebook, which apparently greatly upset Robertson's other girlfriend, which is very, very similar to what happened in the Kiara Coles case. Yeah. And also similar to that case, within days of being interviewed by the police, Robertson and this other girlfriend moved out of state. When Robertson was first interviewed by police, he claimed he last saw Akia on May 1st. But we know he's lying and that they saw each other May 3rd. Robertson said, quote, I was there Monday, and when I left and went to work and came back, my shit was packed for me, so I took the hint. Robertson changed his phone number, which he claims he did after receiving threats from Akia's family. However, phone records show that Robertson changed the number on May 6th, which was the day before Akia was reported missing. Then in February 2022, police arrested Robertson uh, and charged him with two counts of first-degree murder, and he now faces a maximum of two life sentences if he's convicted. There is no word on when his trial is expected to start, but in April 2022, Akia's case was changed from a disappearance to a homicide. Oh, boy. On the night of Akia's disappearance, Robertson googled trash pickup, dumpsters, and landfills in Baltimore 18 separate times. There were dumpsters within 30 feet of Akia's apartment, and investigators followed the route from her apartment to a landfill in Virginia, engineers were able to narrow down a p potential location to 20 acres, which was filled with 500,000 tons of compacted garbage. However, safety regulations prohibited crews from digging more than four feet down. So as of November 30th, 2022, Akia's body has still not been found. But... I don't believe we knew of him or his connection to everything at the time. We just knew that she had been missing. Right. Yeah. Wow. But the Wild update. My God. Yeah. And the similarities to her and Kira. It's crazy because weird. Kira was seen on security cameras getting a bunch of cash out. Yeah. She was pregnant at the time. The 
boy, the baby's father had another girl that had multiple children of his and she didn't get along with the other girlfriend. And like, it's so much of it is the same that it's, it's wild to me, but I couldn't be happier that they arrested this man. Yeah. That he's involved, but he Googled 18 separate times. 18 times. Yeah. Yeah. I think about that all the time when I Google on my phone now. I'm like, what am I typing? It, it's going to, if anything ever happens, it's going to get read in court. So remember yeah, that. that. Oh, I get that. I, the, the amount of times, like it'll be during a movie or something and my laptop's a little further away that I'm like Googling on my phone stuff for like a case that I'm researching or whatever. Oh yeah. That's dark. Yeah. I can't imagine what they're going to be. I mean, there's also like, Jesus lady, do you have to go to the Lego store that many times? Yeah, I do. I like well, to browse. <laughs> <laughs> and that's on, that's for you. That's for you. And that's nobody's business. Yeah. But yeah, I was watching something and listen, I'll, I'll just say this and then we'll get into the episode, but I was watching a true crime thing the other day and they were talking about how to make chloroform and that, it, because it was connected to this case where they oh. believed chloroform was used. And I picked up my phone and started to Google how to make oh, chloroform. And I just was like, put put it down. Put it down. Because I was just genuinely curious. I have no idea sure. how you could do that with household items. But Googling how to make chloroform using house, household items, yeah, that's, that's not bad. something I want to wear. No. But I feel that a good lawyer could be like, she has a true crime podcast. Yeah. Why else would she be Googling that? Well, but yeah, yeah, I get yeah. It. Well, and the great news lawyer, she didn't Google that. I didn't Google it. And you I don't want to know. You made their job easier. And I don't want to know. If I never, if I go to my grave not knowing how to make chloroform, I'm, I'm a-okay with it. It's fine. I have no need for that information. It was I, just my own curiosity. Yeah, I just, and maybe it's just me. I hate, that's a strong word, but I'm standing with it, uh, that it can be made from household items. I don't want to <laughs> think about it. It's horrifying. It's not great. This is why if someone is five minutes late, I'm like, well, the next knock on the door is the police. I assumed that you'd been taken. I I was worried that someone had come for you. Exactly. I'm saying we come about it honestly is my point. Come about it honestly. It's in our genes. Yeah. It's in our very posh genes. One may even say it's in our June. Oh, on that note, we're talking about the Santa Claus bank robbery, which I know nothing about, and I could not be more jazzed, and I am realizing now this was this happened the year that June Ash was born. Well, no shit. Synchronicity. That's nice. Isn't it? That's nice. I, at some point, may request that you keep the accent going, <laughs> just to see how it goes. Yeah. Uh, as long as you bring up my favorite favorite thing that any British person has ever said, and I could not be ch- more charmed by Innit. Innit. Innit is one of my favorite things in the world. I'm so, so charmed by it. One of my favorites is Darling. Darling. They oh. use dar- I feel like they use Darling a lot. I'd like to start, I, I'm going to start using Darling more, just in my own. Yes! My own conversations. Why wouldn't you? Right? Charming. Yes. 
All right. So let's get a little background about this case, shall we? In December 1927, a man dressed as Santa Claus entered a bank in Texas with weapons and three accomplices. The bandits took thousands of dollars and a few hostages before making a run for it. They were quickly pursued by police and armed vigilantes in what led to the largest manhunt in Texas history. So who was the man behind the Santa beard? Did he ever get caught? Did he or his accomplices ever get punished for their crime? And what about the vigilantes? Were they helpful? Or did they just cause more chaos than necessary? We'll find out in this very special holiday true crime episode. Yeah. Sometimes I write those quickly at the end to... Yeah. I don't even Christmas Oxborough investigates. <laughs> I wouldn't... I might start telling people, if I say, like, what's your name, Christy? And then if they say, is it short for something? I may say, Christmas. My name is Christmas Oxborough. I couldn't be happier with that. Should I legally change it? I mean, that's the kind of thing. Ah, shit. I'm going to Google how to change a name. That one I'm okay with. Yeah, because, oh, shit. Oh, this might be my last holiday as Christy. <laughs> I'd love Reporting. to see that for you. I mean, would that make me happy? Yeah. Yeah, there's going to be, oh, God. Oh, but then how many people are going to be like, oh, Merry Christmas. Like, who's going to ruin it for me? Someone's going to ruin it for me. Well, But, you know. Something to think about. Something to think about. Oh, my God. I love it. So, the first bank in the United States opened December 12th, 1791 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Go Flyers. They were not a thing in 1791. But shout out to them anyway. Uh, The following year, more branches opened in New York, Baltimore, Charleston, and Boston. The first bank robbery occurred at a... Uh, in Philadelphia in September 1798. Despite there being no sign of forced entry, a thief made off with $162,821, which is equivalent to $3.9 million in 2022. A 29-year-old blacksmith named Patrick Lyon was the one who installed the new locks on the bank vault and had guaranteed that they could not be picked. So when Patrick got word of the robbery, he returned to Philadelphia to clear his name. However, the authorities responded by putting Patrick in jail for three months. Even though he was 150 miles or 240 kilometers away in Delaware on the night of the robbery. Mm. Patrick remained in jail until the bank got suspicious about some deposits that were being made by a man named Isaac Davis. When he was confronted, Isaac admitted he had robbed the bank and was depositing the money back into his account at the very bank he had robbed from. Turns out, Isaac's accomplice, Thomas Cunningham, was a bank porter who slept overnight at the bank to let Isaac in. Neither man went to jail, and in exchange for his full cooperation and returning the money, Isaac was given a full pardon. Patrick Lyon was finally released, but he was enraged about his wrongful imprisonment, and rightly so. Patrick later published a book about his ordeal, which was titled, and I'm going to give myself the 
task of trying to read this title in a single breath? Please. Narrative of Patrick Lyon, who suffered three months' severe imprisonment in Philadelphia jail on merely a vague suspicion of being concerned in a robbery of the Bank of Pennsylvania with his remarks thereon. (laughs) (laughs) Well done. It's surprising that a book with that catchy title wasn't a huge hit. Yeah. Patrick also uh, sued the state for wrongful imprisonment and was awarded $12,000 which is equivalent to about 290000 now. Another robbery happened in March 1831 when William J. Murray and James Honeyman stole from the Citibank on Wall Street in New York. They entered the building using a duplicate set of keys and stole $245,000, or $8.4 million in today's money. Both were captured, convicted, and sent to Sing Sing Prison for five years. And then we have the first armed bank robbery in the United States, which occurred in Malden, Massachusetts. 27-year-old Edward Green was a married father of one who had alcohol abuse problems and severe gambling debts. In November 1862, Edward set the post office on fire, hoping it would cause him to lose his job as postmaster and allow him to leave the area. But when it didn't go according to plan, Edward decided to rob the bank instead. So on December 15th, 1862, Edward went to the bank with a gun in his pocket. But when he noticed another patron inside, Edward simply got change and left. He went back at 11.30 a.m., and the only person in the building was the bank president's son, 17-year-old Frank Converse. Edward exchanged a dollar bill that was nearly torn in half and left the building. He drew his weapon, immediately returned, walking up to the counter and shooting Frank between the eyes, which I feel was a real escalation there. Things escalated quickly. Yeah, yeah. my goodness. Edward then shot Frank in the head a second time before grabbing $5,000, which is about $147,000 now. Edward managed to leave the scene without anyone noticing and authorities were left with no leads. But then Edward made the mistake of acting suspicious and started paying off his debts, such as the $700 he had owed for two years, which he paid in full just days after the robbery. Edward was questioned and immediately confessed and was arrested in February 1864. He admitted to having $4,000 remaining, hidden in an old boot in the attic of a volunteer firehouse. Edward was hanged for his crime, April 13th, 1866. Bank robberies became more common in America during the Western expansion. There were notable robberies, such as the Clay County Savings Association in Liberty, Missouri, which was robbed by the James Younger Gang, led by Jesse James and his brother Frank. Uh, Not to be confused with the Jesse James, who just keeps cheating on women. Oh my god. But that's a whole other... That's for the... That's for the pop culture chat at the beginning. Yep, absolutely. Um, there was also the Miguel Valley Bank in Telluride, Cal- or Colorado, that was robbed by Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid in hey. 1889. And honestly, when I think about the Wild West, I immediately think cowboys and bank robberies. But it turns out that may not be very accurate. According to the Foundation for Economic Education, between 1859 and 1900, there were less than 10 bank robberies in the 15 frontier states. At the time, towns were smaller, 
buildings were fairly close together, so if a building was robbed, the whole town would know about it immediately. So it seemed much more lucrative for thieves to go after stagecoaches or trains. However, bank robberies started to increase after the invention of automobiles. The first known use of a getaway car in the United States occurred in Santa Clara, California in August 1909. Two robbers stole $7,000 in gold coins from Valley Bank before escaping in an automobile. Authorities and a posse of civilians chased them, and they were captured soon after. And as bank robberies became more common, banks had to increase their security. In the 1920s, banks started adding security alarms and concrete reinforced blast-proof vaults. Some banks in Nevada gave their tellers shotguns and ammo. A branch in Arizona had tear gas guns put above the teller cages. Unfortunately, after some customers were sprayed accidentally, the tear gas was removed. (laughs) After a city bank in Kansas City, Missouri was robbed of $50,000, they installed a machine gun turret over the vault. And allegedly, one bank in Oklahoma kept the money in a cage with live rattlesnakes. It's not full logic. Somehow I wouldn't be surprised. Yep. Uh, By the mid-1920s, robberies were so common in Texas that three or four banks were robbed every single day. In response to this, the Texas State Bankers Association offered a $500 reward for dead bank robbers. And on November 9th, 1927, the association announced, quote, until further notice, the association will pay $5,000 for each person shot down in the act of robbing one of our banks. Adding, quote, We want dead bandits and no other kind. Wow. And for those curious, that $5,000 would be about $86,000 in 2022. Right. So it seems like Texas might not have been the safest place to rob a bank at that time. But Texas is where today's story takes place. Ooh. Marshall Fields Ratliff was born March 26, 1903, in Lampasas County, Texas, to Lee Ratliff and Nancy Jarilla Carter. Marshall had three siblings. Ewellen was born in November 1895, Lee in January 1897, and Ella in June 1900. There may have also been a third sister named Anne or Anna, but I couldn't officially confirm that, and she's not relevant to the story, so... I didn't spend a lot of time there. I think that's okay. I think it is too. Uh, Marshall married Maddie Bell Minica on October 3rd, 1921. They had two sons, DeArmond on July 15th, 1922, and Dane on April 2nd, 1924. In April 1926, Marshall and his brother Lee stole $3,000 from a bank in Valera, Texas. They may have gotten away with it if they'd kept low profiles, but instead they went out drinking and gambling and even outright bragged about the robbery. The brothers were eventually arrested and sentenced to 18 years in the Texas State Penitentiary in Huntsville. Their mother, Nancy, who was known as Rilla, was determined to get her boys out. Rilla was well known in their hometown of Cisco, Texas, as she ran the Manhattan Cafe so she used her popularity to gain public support to petition the governor to give Marshall and Lee an early release. And lucky for Rilla, 
The governor at the time was Miriam Ferguson, known affectionately as Ma. She was the second female governor in U.S. history, the first being Nellie Taylor Ross, who served as the 14th governor of Wyoming from 1925 to 1927. To this day... Nellie is the only woman to have served as governor in Wyoming. Oh, boy. Yeah, right? In 1933, Nellie was appointed as director of the U.S. Mint, once again being the first woman to hold such a position. She was uh, appointed by the president at the time. I love that. Uh, But Ma Ferguson was known for her leniency as she was known to pardon an average of 100 criminals every month. What? For the sake of clarity, Ma's predecessor, Pat Morris Neff, pardoned 297 prisoners during his four-year term. According to author Tui Snyder, by the end of Ma's second term, she had granted nearly 4,000 pardons. Wow. Ma's reputation was so well known even to prisoners, that one particular man broke out of jail to go ask her in person for a pardon, which she did. Wow. She did make him go back to the jail, but then like, then it was like, you just have to go back there to prove you'd go back there, and then you're free. Right? <laughs> yeah. It's wild. Again, the, the 1920s, man. I say that as though I was there. I well, was not. Uh, while in prison, uh, the nope, skipped apart. There we go. After Rilla petitioned Ma Ferguson, Marshall and Lee were released in mid 1927 after serving about a year. I remind you, they were sentenced to 18 years. <laughs> so interesting there. Uh, but by then, Marshall and his wife were no longer together, and his wife eventually remarried. While in prison, the Ratliffs befriended Henry Helms and Robert Hill. Robert was 21 years old. Due to lack of options, he grew up in a reformatory where he spent where he was sent after being orphaned at the age of 10. Robert wanted to make himself some money so he could move away and start a new life. 31-year-old Henry was married father of five with a baby on the way. Henry and his wife, Nettie, were married in 1915. They had a daughter, Ruth, in 1916, a daughter, Opal, in 1919, a son, James, in 1921, a daughter, Norma, in 1923, and a son, Alvin, in 1925. And while Henry wasn't the best husband or father, and kind of had a rap sheet for bootlegging, car theft, and drug dealing, He was the only one of these four men who had a home to return to when they were released from prison. But Henry knew of a boarding house in town that rented rooms to ex-cons, so Henry, Robert, Marshall, and Lee all headed to Wichita Falls. At the time, Marshall and Lee were aged 24 and 30, respectively. So the boarding house was owned by an electrician and his wife named Francis and Josephine Heron. Francis later described Henry Helms as a quick-tempered bully who would fire his pistol at people's shoes to make them listen. At one point, Francis was so uncomfortable having his teenage daughters in the same house as these men that he sent one of his daughters to live with relatives. But one of the guys got angry because apparently he was planning to marry that daughter, 
So Henry threatened Francis, shot a gun at his feet, and Francis personally went and picked up his daughter and brought her back. (laughs) Yikes. Yikes is right. While Henry was seen as the gang's leader, Marshall was the one with the plan. And Marshall's plan was to rob the bank in Cisco, Texas, a small town which, thanks to the oil fields, had grown to a population of about 15,000. As of 2021, the population of Cisco has dropped to below 4,000. But since Marshall knew that he could possibly be recognized in the bank since his family was well known in the town, he came up with the idea of wearing a disguise. And when he saw Josephine sewing a Santa Claus suit for her husband, Marshall asked to borrow it. The pants wouldn't fit, so Marshall only borrowed the coat, the hat, and the beard. And then the plan was set. Marshall would dress up as Santa Claus, the gang would walk into First National Bank in Cisco, take the money, and run. However, The plan had to slightly change after Marshall's brother Lee got sent back to jail in November after a robbery of his own. But instead of calling off the heist, Marshall, Henry, and Robert decided to bring in another man. They found someone who was known for safe cracking. Unfortunately, this unnamed man got the flu and needed to be replaced. So the gang brought in Henry's brother-in-law, 22-year-old Louis Davis. Lewis was a married father of two who worked in the Wichita Falls glass factory and had no previous criminal record. The bills were piling up and Lewis was desperate for money and willing to commit a one-time crime to better his family's position. So he agreed to help with the heist as long as there was no shooting involved. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Uh, On December 22nd, 1927, Marshall, Henry, Robert, and Lewis now known as the Helms Gang, stole a blue Buick sedan from a wealthy oilman in Wichita Falls and drove about 200 miles or 322 kilometers to Cisco, drinking bootlegged whiskey called Electra Lightning along the way. Between 2 and 3 a.m., the gang arrived at a ranch near Moran, which is about 15 miles or 24 kilometers northwest of Cisco. The ranch belonged to Lewis's sister, Minnie Fox, and her husband, Sam, who was not exactly pleased to be woken up in the middle of the night by four drunk men. So Sam made the gang sleep outside in a tent. The gang told Minnie that they were doing a bootlegging run, and Lewis promised his sister that it would be the only time in his life he would commit a crime. Minnie made the men some food, and by late morning, they were on the road to Cisco with Henry Helms behind the wheel. The bank was situated in the middle of town along Avenue D, which was considered Cisco's main drag at the time. It was in a remodeled retail store with two large glass display windows on either side of the front entrance. The door in the back office opened onto a side alley, which was often used by people shopping in the area, so a getaway car wouldn't seem suspicious parking there, especially just days before Christmas. When the gang arrived in town, Marshall put on the Santa coat, hat, and beard, and Henry dropped him off a few blocks from the bank and parked the car in the alley near the bank's side door. Inside the bank, most of the tellers were at lunch, with exception of Jewel Poe, who was taking a deposit from a grocer named Oscar Cleat. Bookkeepers Vance Littleton and Frida Strobel were working in the back office, 
where Frida had just taught 12-year-old Laverne Comer and her friend 10-year-old Emma Mae Robinson how to withdraw money. The bank's president, Charlie Fee, was at home on his lunch break, so his son-in-law, Alex Spears, was in charge. Alex was chatting with his friend, Marion Olson, and it should be noted, Alex Spears helped Marshall's mother arrange for her son's pardons. So I find that interesting. Yeah. With the getaway car parked in the alley near the bank, Marshall walked down the street in the Santa costume, waving at children as he passed. Some of the children started to follow him, and across the street, six-year-old Francis Blazengame Blazengame, spotted Santa and begged her mother to go see him. Marshall met up with the other three members of the Helms gang in the alley, and the four men entered the bank around noon on Friday, December 23rd. Laverne and Emma were headed to the front door when Santa walked in, which caused the girls to stop. In fact, everyone in the bank had their eyes on Santa, so they didn't notice the three armed men enter the building behind him. Henry went to the teller cage where Jewel Poe stood, shoved a gun in his face, and said, stick him up. Marshall shouted for everyone in the building to, quote, reach for some sky, which isn't exactly what Woody says in Toy Story, but I guess it's close enough. (laughs) Marshall entered the teller cage, found a pistol in one of the drawers, and took it as he ordered Jewel to open the vault. Marshall then pulled a burlap sack out from under his coat and started shoving money inside. Robert pointed his weapon at Alex and Marion, while Henry forced Jewel and Oscar into the cashier's office. At this point, things were going smoothly and it seemed as though the Helms gang was about to make an easy getaway. But remember Frances Blazengame that I just mentioned? She noticed Marshall in his Santa suit while she was shopping across the street with her mother, and she begged her mother to let them go to the bank to see Santa. So Mrs. B.P. Blazengame took Frances into the bank, where she immediately noticed various bank patrons with their hands in the air. Mrs. Blazengame turned to leave, but one of the robbers yelled at her to get back from the door. Instead, the mother hustled her daughter toward the back of the bank to the bookkeeper's room, where she told Frida and Vance about the robbery in progress. Mrs. Blazengame took her daughter out the side door and went straight to the police station, which was just one block away. Deputy George W. Carmichael and Officer R.T. Reddys approached the bank from the same door that Mrs. Blazengame and her daughter had escaped from, while Police Chief George Emery Bedford covered the building's main entrance. While heading to the bank, Reverend Thomas Lennox saw Chief Bedford, who told the Reverend, quote, get men and guns and block the street. Jesus. Yep. Different time. Different time. Yeah. Uh... And it's quite different from how police handle this kind of situation now. Can you imagine if there was a robbery in progress and you walk past the bank and a cop looks at you and goes, well, go get a gun. Like, I can't. Yeah. Um, But of course, I mean, it was a different time. And I remind you, a month before the heist, the Texas State Bankers Association raised their reward for dead bandits from $500 to $5,000 meaning the public had a very big incentive to go after the Helms gang. Collins Hardware Store handed out guns and ammunition to 
anyone willing to take up arms, including some high school students. Wow. One witness said, quote, it was panic. People ran out into the streets with butcher knives, shotguns, anything they could get. Within minutes, more than a dozen armed vigilantes hid in the alley beside the bank, waiting for the robbers to exit. Soon, there were nearly 100 citizens ready to take those robbers down. Inside the bank, Henry Helms took the two children hostages, Emma May and Laverne, and took them to the back bookkeeper's office. A member of the Helms gang fired a shot through one of the bank's front windows. Some believe this may have been a signal to a potential accomplice, but others think it was to deter looky-loos who were peeking in the window. One of the many armed vigilantes in the street responded by firing a shot into the bank. To warn people outside that they, in fact, did have weapons, Robert Hill fired four warning shots into the ceiling. But instead of calming things down, those four shots set off a 15-minute-long barrage of gunfire. Investigators later estimated at least 200 shots were fired. Whoa. During the onslaught of gunfire, the Helms gang hid in the back room with the hostages. The gang then tried to make a run for it out the side door, with Marshall using bookkeeper Frida as a human shield. The bank's bank manager's son-in-law, Alex Spears, was the first person to be shoved out the side door, where he was immediately shot in the jaw by an awaiting vigilante. God. The Helms gang yelled at Alex to get into their car, but instead... Alex, who somehow was still mobile, ran around the corner and hid in a small alleyway behind the bank. With the door open, other hostages started to make a run for it, and the vigilantes didn't bother to wait and see if those were running were the robbers or not. Oscar Cleat caught a bullet in the heel while he was trying to escape. Marion Olson caught a bullet in his thigh before one of the Helms gang members shoved him into the back seat of the getaway car. But Marion managed to slide across the seat and get out the other side of the car. Two bystanders named Brady Boggs and Peter Rutherford were both shot in the leg while running to the scene to help. Bank employees Frida and Jewel managed to get away from the bank unscathed. Lewis Davis headed for the door and was shot in his neck, his side, and both arms. But somehow he managed to get himself in the backseat of the car. The three police officers at the scene were the only people who waited for a clear shot before firing their weapons. As Marshall headed for the car, Chief Bedford shot at him, but his gun jammed and Bedford was shot five times in the torso. When the chief went down, Deputy Carmichael stepped out of the alley and fired a few shots before he was shot in the head. Marshall threw the bag of money into the car and got in beside Lewis. Henry ordered Laverne and Emma May to get into the car, and when Laverne tried to run, Marshall grabbed her wrist and pulled her into the vehicle. Robert Hill left the bank, using bookkeeper Vance Littleton as a human shield. Robert climbed into the driver's seat, and Vance was able to escape unharmed. One of the vigilantes, a cafe owner named R.L. Davis, ran up to the getaway car, put a gun to Robert's head, and fired. The gun was fully loaded and had just been given to Davis at the hardware store. However, Davis didn't know how to use a gun and didn't know how to work the safety. Davis pulled the trigger twice, but nothing happened. When Davis was grazed by a stray bullet, 
Robert pulled the car away just as Davis's gun fired into the side of the department store next door. The robbers made off with $12,000 cash and another $150,000 worth of checks, bonds, and valuables. That would be equivalent to $205,000 plus $2.6 million in 2022. Wow. Yeah. I have... I, I'm at a loss for words. I, there's this is this there's everything you want in a story here. There's there's yeah. so much. I'll say it. Drama, a lot of calamity. <laughs> That's where I'm at. A lot of calamity. Oh my gosh. Well, listen. I can't wait to find out what's happening next. So let's take a quick break. Grab a drink. Hit the can, and we'll be right back with more about the Santa Claus bank robbery on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're, of course, discussing the Santa Claus bank robbery. Before the break, my jaw was on the floor because this story gives. Um, I, I, they've taken children hostage at this point. Yeah. Um, what happens next? Well, as they made their getaway, Marshall fired through a hole in the rear window of the car and Henry tossed roofing nails into the road to puncture the tires of any vehicles that may pursue them. Robert turned right onto Avenue D when a postal worker named Will Coldwell fired his service revolver, which I have questions about. Service, like as in the postal service revolver? I guess it was a full uh, f- full, <laughs> full service. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he fired at the car shooting the gas tank once and the left rear tire four times. The car skidded so hard that the back door opened and Emma May almost fell out. She didn't, but she almost did. And not only did the car now have a punctured tire, but it was also low on gas as the robbers failed to refill it after their long drive from Wichita Falls. They drove the Buick to the edge of town, all while being pursued by an armed posse of citizens. So at this point, The Harris family 
are out doing some last-minute Christmas shopping. 14-year-old Woodrow Woody Harris is behind the wheel. His 80-year-old grandmother is in the passenger seat and his parents are sitting in the back. While stopped at a stoplight near 14th Street and Avenue D, they noticed a man in a bloody Santa suit walking towards their Oldsmobile. He started waving a gun and told the family to exit the vehicle. Robert fired a shot into the air and approached the front passenger window, telling the grandmother to leave, and she refused. When Robert pointed the gun at Woody, the family quietly surrendered the vehicle. Robert took Woody's grandmother and parents to a nearby house, while Woody stayed with the rest of the gang, who was tran- who transferred all of their stuff from the beat-up Buick to the Harris's Oldsmobile. Woody tried to make a run for it, but the men fired multiple shots at him. When an armed posse arrived, they mistook Woody as one of the robbers and started firing at him. So Woody took shelter in a nearby shed. While exchanging gunfire with the posse, Robert was shot in the arm. The gang tried to start the car, but soon realized that not only had Woody locked the steering column, but he'd also taken the car keys with him. So with the posse closing in, the gang had no choice but to return to their Buick. But at this point, Lewis, who had been shot multiple times, had lost consciousness. And the other three men made the choice to leave Lewis behind. Henry, Robert, Marshall, Laverne, and Emma May all got back into the Buick and quickly drove off. When police arrived on scene, not only did they find Lewis Davis in the abandoned car... But they also found two pistols, three cartridge belts, and a burlap Idaho potato sack full of money. And not only did the thieves accidentally leave their loot behind, but when the money was counted, there was $4 more than what had been taken at the bank. (laughs) (laughs) So somehow, the Helms gang managed to lose money during the heist. Which is pretty ineffective bank robbery, uh, if you ask me. But during the robbery, a total of 11 people were shot. Although, from best I can tell, nine of those people were accidentally shot by vigilantes. (laughs) Oh my god! The victims included one bank employee, two customers, three bystanders, three members of the Helms gang, and two police officers. Chief Bedford was taken to hospital, where he died hours later at 7.45 p.m. Deputy Carmichael was in a coma, where he remained until January 7, 1928, when he died from his injuries. Both men were 60 years old at the time of their deaths. Despite being shot, Alex Spears, who you may remember was shot in the jaw, decided to keep the bank open for the rest of the day and stayed for the remainder of his shift before going to the hospital. Alex. They don't pay you enough, Alex. No. Well, his it's his father-in-law who runs the bank. Oh. So then he's really just trying to put on a show, I 100%, guess, huh? 100%, yeah. Uh, his injuries were non-life-threatening, as you may have oh, noticed. That's good. Uh, Marshall had been shot in the leg and jaw, and Lewis was badly injured. When Woody came out of the shed, he told the po- the posse told him to drive the unconscious Lewis Davis to the hospital. A crowd soon formed outside the hospital, so to avoid a potential lynching, 
Lewis was transferred to a hospital in Fort Worth. When asked, Lewis gave his real name, but he gave fake names for his accomplices. Hours later, Lewis died from his injuries. He was just 22 years old. Wow. The other three members of the Helms gang got five miles or eight kilometers from town before the Buick broke down. They turned onto a dirt road and abandoned the car in some brush before continuing on foot. At some point soon after, Marshall ditched the Santa coat and beard, but before they left the scene, the men told Laverne and Emma May to lie on the floor of the vehicle and told them not to look or they would be shot. When police found the car minutes later, the girls started to scream to alert that they were there. And thank God they did, because the police were about to open fire on the vehicle without checking it first. Jesus. Again, different time. Well. Well, maybe maybe not so. <laughs> God, have, we, have we really circled back? Jesus. <laughs> Uh, Laverne admitted that while driving with the thieves, she got a look at Santa's face before he hit her with the butt of his gun. And because she did, Laverne was able to identify Santa as Marshall Ratliff, which she knew because Laverne's parents had purchased the Manhattan Cafe from Santa's mother, Rilla Carter. The place where the bank or where the Buick was found became the starting point of the largest manhunt in the state of Texas at the time. According to newspapers, over 1,000 men joined the search, including law enforcement and hundreds of civilians. However, the search wasn't very organized, because every time a potential clue was found, everyone would stop searching their specific area to come look at it. So some areas didn't get fully searched. They found Robert's bloodstained jacket, cans of food, a suitcase of first aid supplies, and a bullet-riddled Santa coat and beard. Bloodhounds were brought to the scene, but by then the trail had been so trampled by horses and searchers that the dogs couldn't pick up anything useful. William Gilbert Abernathy, one of the sheriffs helping out in the search, lost two fingers and severed an artery in his right leg after his rifle accidentally discharged. William managed to survive and went on to become a Texas Ranger. Oh. Another member of the posse also had gun issues. Judge W.F. Parsley's shotgun accidentally went off as he unloaded it. He survived, but had one of his feet amputated. Henry and Robert snuck into Cisco and stole a Model T Ford about a block away from the First National Bank. Marshall stayed out of sight as he was the most recognizable of the three in town. They picked up Marshall and headed west a few hours before pulling into a wooded area to sleep. The next day, they used back roads to get to the ranch owned by Minnie Fox, Lewis Davis's sister, which is wild to me that they went to her for help after they abandoned her brother when he was injured. Minnie told the men that she'd gone to the hospital to see Lewis, but that by the time she arrived, Lewis had been transferred to the one in Fort Worth, so Minnie didn't get a chance to see Lewis before he died. But even then, Minnie gave the men food, dressed their wounds, and they left a few hours later. Now, you may recall Josephine Heron, the landlady at the boarding house where Marshall and Robert were staying prior to the heist. Well, before they left Wichita Falls, Henry told Josephine that if they got into trouble, she should send Dr. J.T. Vick to the Fox family ranch. And somehow Josephine knew, and on Sunday, December 25th, Dr. Vick, 
his housekeeper, Essie Thornton, and Josephine made the drive to Minnie's ranch. By the time they arrived, the ranch was under police surveillance, and all three were immediately taken in for questioning. Some have suggested that Josephine may have been at the ranch already, and she claimed to have arrived with the doctor to avoid being linked to the robbery. I assume the police outright asked the doctor and the housekeeper if Josephine traveled with them or not. Josephine admitted she had made the Santa suit and bought the beard that Marshall was wearing during the robbery. She also told them Henry Helms ran a dope line from El Paso to Tulsa, Oklahoma, and that he told her the names of different doctors who uh, he would sell his smuggled drugs to. Wow. Don't know how accurate that is, but uh, after Lewis Davis's funeral on Christmas Day, eight people were brought in for questioning, including Minnie and her husband, Sam, and three of their adult children. Everyone was released except for Minnie, who admitted to helping the men the night before. Minnie was soon released, and the only person who remained in custody was Josephine. That same day, Henry, Marshall, and Robert were still on the run. They drove back roads at night and slept in secluded areas during the day. While driving around sunset, Henry hit a cattle guard, and the stolen vehicle ended up in a ditch near Putnam. The, the men walked to a nearby farm, which was owned by the Wiley family. They told the family they needed to borrow a car because one of their men was sick. They waited for the Wiley's 21-year-old son, Carl, to return with the family's only vehicle. And when Carl arrived, the Helms gang pulled guns on him, jumped into the car, and told Carl to drive. Mr. Wiley fired a gun at the car as it drove off, but the only person he hit was his son, Carl, <laughs> who suffered only minor injuries and did of survive. It's just the amount of people who got shot because someone was just wildly firing a gun. Uh, so Carl drove the bank robbers down back roads where they siphoned gas to continue their journey. The only provisions that they had were just two single oranges, and they refused to share any of it with Carl. One of the men even stole Carl's jacket. About 24 hours after Carl's kidnapping, they pulled into Breckenridge, which is about 30 miles or 48 kilometers north of Cisco, on December 27th. The Helms gang stole a Model T Roadster and left Carl and his vehicle behind. Carl drove back to town, only to discover they weren't in Breckenridge, as they originally thought. It turns out all the driving in the dark and on the back roads got them turned around, and they somehow ended up right back in Cisco. So 89 hours after the heist, the robbers were still at the scene of the crime. Oh, my God. Around 5 a.m., Carl went to the Cisco police station to report the crime. Marshal Henry and Robert headed north towards South Bend, unaware that a posse of police officers and civilians had set up a roadblock there. According to Robert Hill, quote, we didn't see the officers until we got right at South Bend, about a block from them. They turned the car and tried to run, but they were quickly pursued by a posse and another shootout took place. This time, the posse took aim at the gang's tires, flattening one to the point where the rubber peeled off and it was just a rim. The Helms gang abandoned the car and tried to hide in the brush near some oil wells. Texas Rangers Silas Bradford managed to shoot all three men, but only Marshall went down. 
Marsha was captured and found to have three ammo belts, six handguns, a double-barreled shotgun, and a bowie knife on him. Marshall had suffered six bullet wounds, so he was taken to a hospital in Graham. Henry and Robert headed to some nearby woods and hid. Uh, six bullet wounds. I, I'm not going anywhere with that. Yeah, no. But hey, I guess my life wasn't on the line, so that's how... Well, you know what that reminds yeah. me of very quickly is Bonnie yeah. and Clyde and this in the story about yeah. right the gal who had all those yeah bullet wounds right the other gal yeah whose name oh, is eluding me um why did I think her name was Bonnie the other mm-hmm. guys mm-hmm. doesn't matter no, I don't I need know to who you derail mean. us I just, but it just I, I'm having shades yeah. of that throughout this where it's like you know anyway yeah oh I similar get it. time similar yes. time. Uh, A manhunt ensued involving police, civilians, dogs, and an airplane. And somehow they managed to elude the searchers for two days. But the men had infected wounds, they had no food, so they were not faring very well. On December 29th, they walked into Graham and stole some corn cobs and hid in a barn. The next morning, they made their way to the Texan Hotel, where Henry gave up without resistance. Robert attempted to run, but was quickly captured. Henry and Robert were held in jail in Graham before being transferred to Eastland County Jail, where Marshall was already in custody. So all people involved in the heist had been apprehended. Or were they? Oh. We know the bank robbery was committed by four men, but some claim that the men may have had a blonde female accomplice. Before his death, Chief Bedford was interviewed at the hospital where he said, quote, It wasn't a man who shot me. It was a blonde-headed woman. I was looking her straight in the eyes when she fired. But despite Bedford's stellar reputation, no one seemed to believe him. J.M. Williamson, the mayor of Cisco, released a statement saying no women were involved in the robbery. So was there a blonde woman involved or not? Well, Frida, Laverne, and Emma May were the only females in the bank that day, and they were all brunettes. So who could the mysterious blonde be? Well, remember, the police took Josephine Heron into custody, and according to the Austin American Statesman, on December 29, 1927, the sheriff was trying to account for Josephine's whereabouts on the day of the robbery. The newspaper also mentioned that Josephine had reddish-brown hair, which, quote, looked as if it were dyed. So is it possible that Josephine did more than just lend Marshall that Santa suit? She did bring a doctor to Minnie Fox's farm just days after the robbery, so maybe she knew more than she was telling. And when word spread about the heist, police in Wichita Falls received a tip from an anonymous source who claimed that a blonde woman wearing military clothes was involved in the robbery. And when Josephine was arrested, newspapers described her as having, quote, a mannish attire, which included a khaki shirt, khaki pants, and tall work boots. It was also believed that the Helms gang may have been responsible for the November 9th heist in Bangs, Texas, which is about 60 miles or 96 kilometers south of Cisco. An anonymous tip given to the sheriff 
claimed the thieves had buried the loot in a fruit jar in Wichita Falls. The fruit jar was found right where the tipster said it would be, and it contained $1.3 million in Liberty Bonds, which a bank cashier identified as the ones that were stolen in bangs. And where was the jar found? Buried in Josephine Heron's backyard. So it's more than possible that Josephine was more involved with the Helms gang than she let on. Eventually, police charged Josephine with being an accessory to murder after the fact. Josephine's 15-year-old daughter, Marion, testified on Josephine's behalf, and the charges against her were dropped. But speaking of testifying, let's get to the trial of the three remaining members of the Helms gang. Marshall Ratliff's trial started January 23, 1928, where he pleaded not guilty. The defense had no witnesses, while the prosecution had 50, including 12-year-old Laverne Comer and 10-year-old Emma May Robinson. Laverne was unable to recognize Marshall, but Emma May pointed him out without hesitation. Marshall's mother, Rilla, was the first to arrive every day of the trial and the last person to leave. She took notes and spoke with the special court-appointed legal counsel in hopes of finding a way to help her son. Two days into the trial, jailers found a loose panel and a hidden iron bar in the cell that Marshall shared with Henry, which led many to believe they were planning an escape. But two, just two days after that, Marshall's trial came to an end, and on January 27th, Marshall was convicted of armed robbery and sentenced to 99 years in prison. Henry Helms' trial started February 20th. Henry was identified as the person who shot both Sheriff Bedford and Deputy Carmichael, so he was put on trial for both armed robbery and two counts of murder. Henry pleaded not guilty. His wife and their five children all attended, although it didn't seem to make the jury feel any sympathy towards Henry, as Alex Spears told took to the stand to describe Henry firing pistols from the side door of the bank, and Frida Strobel testified that Henry's overall demeanor was quite angry. On February 26th, Henry was found guilty and given the death penalty. Whoa! Henry's wife, Nettie, who was pregnant at the time of the heist, gave birth to their sixth child, Alta, in July 1928. But by then, Nettie had moved her family to Oklahoma. So then Robert Hill's trial took place in March 1928. He pleaded guilty to armed robbery and signed a full confession, claiming that while he did fire guns, he didn't actually aim at anyone. Robert admitted to firing the four warning shots into the ceiling during the robbery, as well as a few more while they were attempting to carjack the Harris family's Oldsmobile. The jury deliberated for 44 minutes, and Robert was sentenced to 99 years in prison. Whoa! And on March 26, 1928, which happened to be Marshall's 25th birthday, Marshall went on trial again, but this time for the murders of Sheriff Bedford and Deputy Carmichael. Marshall's mother, Rilla, was the only witness for the defense, and despite the fact that no one could testify to having seen Marshall fire a gun at the bank at all, on March 30th, Marshall was found guilty and given the death penalty. Marshall and Henry both appealed their death sentences, but both were denied, and they were sent to Texas State Prison in Huntsville, where they met fellow death row inmate 
Harry Leahy. Harry's lawyer discovered a statute in Texas law that forbid execution if the prisoner was insane, regardless as to the prisoner's prisoner's mental state at the time the crime was committed. Interesting. So Harry quit eating, started acting strange, started babbling, and his family petitioned for a sanity hearing. The hearing was unsuccessful. However, it gave Henry the idea to try the same thing. Henry quit bathing, shaving. He even refused haircuts. He shredded any paper that was near him, including the Bible his wife had given him. Whenever he spoke, it was in a sing-songy way, and his expression was always vacant. The judge ordered Henry to have a haircut and a shave, which required four deputies to hold Henry down. During his insanity hearing, it took four guards to get Henry to and from court. He muttered in a deep voice and rocked back and forth in his chair. Both sides were given 90 minutes to present their case. The jury deliberated for only 10 minutes before declaring Henry of sound mind. Uh, Oh, wow. Yeah. Now, prior to 1924, executions were done by hanging. But in 1924, all executions were done by electric chair in Huntsville. The prison's warden at the time, R.F. Coleman, was so upset about the electric chair being brought in that he resigned. He said, quote, a warden can't be a warden and a killer too. The penitentiary is a place to reform a man, not to kill him. But unfortunately for Henry, the next warden didn't seem bothered by electrocution, and Henry was executed by electric chair September 6th, 1929. He was 33 at the time. Wow. After Henry's death, Marshall started mumbling, twitching, and had difficulty moving his hands and feet. On October 23rd, 1929, Marshall's mother filed paperwork for a sanity hearing, claiming that during his 22 months on death row, quote, the parade of doomed men stretched over a period of 21 months had driven him insane. Marshall was transferred to Eastland County Jail for additional armed robbery charges and for stealing the Harris's car. But the public was angry that Marshall hadn't been executed and him attempting an insanity plea enraged them further. So crowds of enraged citizens start to gather outside the jail demanding Marshall be released to them. Now at the time, Edward Paxton Kilborn, known as Pack, was the head guard at the jail and Deputy Sheriff Tom Alexander Jones was volunteering at the jail as it was at maximum capacity. And Pack and Tom were convinced that Marshall had gone insane. They had to feed him, bathe him, take him to the toilet. At first, they unofficially tested him by poking him with a pin and pretending to stab him in the eye with a fork to see if he'd flinch, letting his body fall to the ground from a standing position. And in the end, Pack and Tom were convinced that Marshall's paralysis was real. On November 19, 1929, Pack and Tom fed Marshall and put him to bed, but forgot to close Marshall's cell door as they finished serving the rest of the meals. The second the guards were out of view, Marshall jumped up and ran out of the cell. However, the doors to the jail were locked and Marshall was trapped. 
He searched through Pack's desk, but only found a thirty-eight revolver. Marshall took the gun, ran upstairs, and demanded that Tom give him the keys. Tom refused. Marshall shot him. Marshall and Tom fought over the gun, and they fell downstairs. Tom was shot two more times in the struggle. When Pack arrived, he tackled Marshall and tried to subdue him. Tom was taken to hospital, where he later succumbed to his injuries. He was 56 years old. The crowd outside the prison, which had grown to over 1,500 people, heard about Marshall's attempted escape and Tom's injuries, so they started chanting, quote, We want Santa Claus. <sighs> Don't we all? Yeah. Uh, Pack tried to calm the crowd, but they overpowered him, stole his keys, and forced their way inside the jail. The vigilantes dragged Marshall out a side door, stripped him naked, and put a rope with a noose over a wire between two utility poles. Oddly enough, those two poles were behind the Majestic Theater, which at the time, and this is no joke, was running a play called The Noose. Wow. Yeah. The mob tied Marshall's hands and feet, put the rope around Marshall's neck, and hoisted him into the air. But a few moments later, the rope broke, and Marshall fell to the ground. Moments later, a new rope was brought to the scene. Marshall was again hoisted into the air, and this time the rope remained strong. Marshall's body was allowed to remain hanging for 30 minutes until he was pronounced dead by a justice of the peace at 9.55 p.m. He was 26 years old. Authorities ordered Marshall's body to be cut down from the pole. The following day, his body was displayed in the window of the Barrow Furniture Company, Thousands of people viewed the body before a judge ordered it to be moved. Marshall's body was taken to Fort Worth, where he was buried in an unmarked grave, November 24th, 1929. Newspapers claimed that Josephine Heron's daughter, Florence, attended Marshall's funeral, because apparently, at the time of the heist, they had been in a relationship. No one has been able to confirm if either Florence or her mother were blondes at the time of the crime. Right. I assume at least one was, but that is just an assumption. After the lynching, District Attorney Joe H. Jones, who was the nephew of Deputy Tom Jones, who had died, uh, prepared a list of 75 people to call before a grand jury. The list of names was never made public, and the entire thing was quietly swept under the rug. No one was ever charged in connection with Marshall's death, which was the last public lynching in Texas history. And I'll say this. Lauren's biggest fear, dirty cops. My biggest fear, the aggression of mob mentality. (laughs) That's where where I'm at. People turn different when they're in a big group like that. It's terrifying. Yeah. And I can't. Yeah. But because... Marshall, Henry, and Robert were brought in alive, and because it was impossible to definitively prove exactly who had killed Lewis Davis, no one collected the dead robber bounty, which remained a thing in Texas until 1964. That's late. That's late. It's late it's to the game. It's very late. Uh, however, after that came another robbery reward program but it focused on preventing and discouraging robberies by assisting law enforcement in obtaining information. 
The only person who was rewarded in any way in that heist was 14-year-old Woody Harris, who prevented the Helms gang from stealing his car. Woody was given an engraved gold pocket watch from the bank's insurance company. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Robert Hill broke out of prison in 1931 before being captured and sent to Eastland County Jail to stand trial for the murder of Chief Bedford and Deputy Carmichael. He received another sentence of 99 years, during which time he escaped twice. Robert was released in 1948 and was given a full pardon in August 1964. He changed his name, moved to a new town, joined a church, and settled down. He spent his remaining years as a productive member of society. During his time in prison, Robert wrote letters to some of the victims of the heist, uh, after which he kept in touch with Woody Harris, and the two men eventually became friends, and even met up on December 23, 1977, the 50th anniversary of the heist. Robert also helped a man named A.C. Green write a book about the incident called The Santa Claus Bank Robbery. However, the book gets a lot of names wrong and leaves out a lot of key pieces of information. Either way, yeah. the, the First National Bank remains in Cisco, although it moved to a new building in 1982. The new location features a painting of the robbery as well as pictures and newspaper clippings. The clock that once stood outside the First National Bank now stands in downtown Cisco with a memorial plaque. The original building was torn down and a new one put in its place is now home to an auto parts store. In 1967, the Texas Historical Commission, which was the Texas State Historical Survey Committee at the time, placed a medallion on the building in memory of the robbery. The historical marker gives a brief description of the robbery and ends with, quote, Later, a mob lynched Santa when he broke out of jail. Uh, yeah, but can yeah. you imagine a child just old enough to read that? <laughs> yeah, good point. Well, I'm sure if you live in that area, you probably know the story very well. Uh, there is also a marker in Eastland on the spot where Marshall Ratliff was lynched. Marshall's sons, Dane and DeArmond, were sent to live with relatives in Crosscut, Texas. Not much is known about Dane. But Diarman, who went by the name Pat, ended up doing a few small movie roles and became friends with actor Robert Duvall. Huh. Pat, Pat died in 2008, and apparently, Wilford Brimley was an honorary pallbearer. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Just not a name I thought I was going to say today. No. In 2005, playwright Billy Smith debuted a bluegrass musical based on the events of the robbery called The Great Santa Claus Bank Robbery. The author described it as, quote, a lighthearted romp that pokes fun at the greed on both sides of the chase. The show featured 14 original songs and was a dinner show that involved audience participation, which I know Lauren despises as an yeah. audience member. Thank you. This, of course, was not the last time that a robber would disguise themselves as Santa. On December 14, 1962, a man dressed as Santa entered a CIBC in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. Two officers were killed at the scene. And honestly, I debated about getting into it further in this episode. But then it, my synopsis started getting, like, really long. 
And I think I'm just going to do it as a full episode next December. <laughs> I love that. Uh, which, besides the hoot nannies that we do every year, is the furthest I've ever planned out an episode. Yeah. So I guess we now just all wait and see if I follow through. Yeah. But until then, another bad Santa tidbit for you, if you will. On December 22nd, 2009, a man dressed in a Santa suit robbed the Sun Trust Bank in Hermitage, Tennessee. The man was wearing the suit, hat, beard, and dark sunglasses and was carrying a large sack. When he was asked to remove his sunglasses, the man refused, reached into the sack, and pulled out a gun. He told the bank tellers he needed money to pay his elves. And he said if they put dye bombs in the cash, he would come back and kill everyone. Wow. The suspect was described as a Caucasian male, approximately six feet with brown hair. He fled the scene in a gray vehicle. Police had no leads until March 17th, 2010, which, for those playing along at home, is St. Patrick's Day. When that same man robbed the first state bank in Nashville's suburb of Gallatin, this time dressed as a leprechaun. No. Yeah. Yeah. He has a similar cosplay season to us, I guess. I guess he does. Yeah. Uh, The man entered the bank at 1228 p.m. wearing a green top hat, vest, shorts, and a fake brown beard and wig. The suspect was also carrying a large caliber gun. First, he entered the fifth third bank, but noticed it was crowded. So he went to the first state bank, which was next door. The suspect fled from the scene with a blue bag in his hands before getting into an awaiting car driven by a second man. As they drove away, both fired shots at the police who pursued them, disabling one of the police cars. The men soon ditched the vehicle and ran into a field where both men were shot while exchanging gunfire with the police. Investigators determined the main suspect was 21-year-old David Christopher Cotton, During the investigation, it was discovered Cotton not only had that Santa suit in his home, he also had made similar comments to the staff during both robberies and fit the description from the Santa heist. The getaway driver was was 20-year-old Jonathan Ryan Skinner, a student from Western Kentucky University. Both Cotton and Skinner died from their injuries. Police have not released how much was taken during either robbery. Then we have the case of 70-year-old Ronald Joseph Papaleone, who owned a nonprofit called Joy Foundation, where he would dress up as Santa at the foundation's annual holiday shopping event for underprivileged kids in the Atlanta area. Papaleone was also head of premier management, which oversaw the funds of the Lake Alatuna Preservation Authority. But it turns out, that between 2007 and 2009, Papa Leone wrote multiple unauthorized checks from the organization to himself, including a $5,000 payment to his own Joy Foundation. In the end, Papa Leone was accused of stealing more than $150,000. In August 2014, he pleaded guilty to five counts of theft, including theft by a government employee. He was sentenced to 15 years probation, They have not publicly stated what his restitution may be. But since we've talked about bad guys dressed as Santa, I want to just take a brief moment to talk about the good guys dressed as Santa. 
In December 2020, two undercover officers dressed as Santa and an elf stopped three suspected shoplifters and two suspected car thieves outside a Target in Riverside, California. The officers were there for a program they called Santa's Intervention, which is meant to target retail theft during the holidays. The officers caught two men trying to steal a white Honda CRV before the suspects attempted to leave the scene. One resisted arrest, but both were taken into custody. They also arrested a woman who tried to walk out of the store with a full cart of stolen items. The suspect was also found to be in possession of illegal narcotics. A second potential thief, who had been known for previously stealing items from that same store, was arrested for trespassing as well as being in possession of illegal narcotics. And a third suspect was arrested for grand theft after stealing $1,000 worth of Lego. And I know it shouldn't matter, but I'm dying to know what sets he was trying to get. Did he get a bunch of the super expensive ones to try and sell them? Is he an avid collector so he chose his favorite collections? How many sets did he take? Because Lego can range from like $20 up to like $800. On Lego's own website, the Millennium Falcon from Star Wars, for example. I'm listening. Is listed, is listed as $1,050 Canadian, which is about $780 US. It features 7000 541 pieces and measures 8 inches high, 33 inches long, and 23 inches wide. They also sell a smaller version for $210, but it only has 1,300 pieces and measures 5 inches high, 17 inches long, and 12 inches wide. And if any of our dear listeners has ever purchased this massive, massive Millennium Falcon set, I just want to know. How long did it take you to put together? Because I spent my birthday watching Christmas movies and putting together the holiday Main Street set, which is over 1,500 pieces. It took me damn near all day, which was a goddamn delight, and I enjoyed every second of it. I'm just curious of what that time looks like. Reporting for this holiday true crime episode turned Lego love fest, I'm Christmas Oxborough. <laughs> Oh, I just couldn't love it more. <laughs> wow. Um, I want you to know, I have taken what may have been the most ADHD-style notes ever in any episode of this show. So I buckle in for that. that for you. Oh, just, well, be careful what you wish for. Um, let's take another quick break, hit the can one more time, grab another drink, and then we'll be back with my scattered chaos on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. 
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're, of course, discussing the Santa Claus bank robbery case. And I just have to say right off the get... What a delight. Not that it's a delight to hear about people getting shot or killed, but I had never heard anything about this. And what a story. I was getting Bonnie and Clyde vibes um, just because it's that similar kind of the vigilante justice that was going on in this time period and whatnot. I loved it. So kudos to you, Christy Oxborough, for putting together another fantastic episode, as always. Um I loved your background on bank robberies. That was very interesting. Again, also a history lesson. You're welcome, listeners. Um, Professor Oxborough. Well, I just want you to know, that's where my cohesive uh, notes that are on point and on topic end. Sure. Here we grow. Frank Converse. Converse? Holy shit. Is Is it of sneaker fame, Converse? If you think I didn't think the same thing, just like I thought Alex Spears, any relation? <laughs> yeah, that that is how my brain first went into this. Yeah, yeah. Well, good, good because there's only more of that where it came from. Um, <laughs> he hid his money in an old boot. Oh yeah. shit, that's exactly what I would do. But I don't really keep old boots around. These are again. These are the notes that you're getting. So. <laughs> Jesse James, cheater, I say. And then I wrote, makes me think of Jesse James Decker. Did you know I watched this season of Dancing with the Stars? Every second of it. Alfonso Ribeiro seems to hate his life. Also, I had a themed (laughs) dinner with friend of the podcast, Anessa Frantowski, with two of us, a full barbecue dinner with signs for each of the the word puns that I made for each of the items. Obviously, Alfonso Ribzero was on the menu, which inspired the whole thing. Then I wrote, Jesse James also makes me think of Jesse J. She dated Channing Tatum. Ah, Channing Tatum. What a gift to us all. (laughs) (laughs) Then you told me what you think of when you think of the Wild West. And I said, I think of that Will Smith song. Boy, it's bad. (laughs) Uh Then you started talking about stagecoach, stagecoaches. And I said, this reminds me of the Lavinia Fisher Fisher episode of the show. I also want to watch Ocean's Eleven. (laughs) (laughs) At this point, I just I just gave into it. I was like, I don't know what I don't know why. I've had a yeah. fine day. I don't know why, but this is just what's happening. This is what you're getting. Well, I'll um, tell you what you're getting is promos probably from the end of the show. Instead <laughs> of the it's unprecedented. It's unprecedented. Yeah, yeah it is. Oh, my God. Um, okay. Th- they were The bank robberies were, were a whole a, a problem at the time. This mm-hmm. bank kept money in a vault with live rattlesnakes. I feel bad for anyone who had to go in there. And then I just pictured, like, what if you were the bank teller? And it was like, oh, get me get me my snake skin, my snake fighting stick. I got to go yeah. get some cash out. Like, oh, how would that system even work? 
you can't tell me they didn't fight over who had to go in there. Like a rock, paper, scissors. Yes. Rock, paper, scissors, snake. No, I've (laughs) I've lost it. Rocks, they threw at the snakes. Paper bags, they threw over their heads and scissors. Well, snip, snip, bitch. Um, (laughs) I'm reading that down. (laughs) Fully sober. Not a drop of alcohol. Joie de vivre. Writing snip, snip, bitch. And I'm not going to put any context around it. I'm just putting that. God, that makes me happy. Yep. You needed it. You needed it. Okay. I did. I did. Uh, the Helms gang, yeah. um, they were drinking bootleg whiskey they call Electra Lightning. Yeah. Electra Lightning. Yep. <laughs> I, I can't even get into it. I, I mean, I just went so dirty. I was like, Electra Lightning, that makes me think of, and then insert like crudeness. You know what I mean? Of course. Anyway. Uh, another liquid is my point. Doesn't matter. Lightning? What? Um, again, like I said, it ain't getting better. Uh, now, every time you said MMA, I heard MMA, like mixed sure. martial arts. Sure. Every single time. And I yep. was like, where's Joe Rogan? Get off this podcast. You've got enough <laughs> listeners on your damn own. <laughs> then I just Yeah, wrote, we don't got time for you, Rogan. No, get out of here, Rogan. You piece of shit, son of a bitch. Oh, yeah, you're laying in your bed and you're just made out of money. God damn it. Have fun with that. Ah, shit, this might be my favorite thing we've ever done. <laughs> I think if I'd known, because- I would have randomly asked you how you felt about Joe Rogan. <laughs> I, listen, I, I, I think it's because this was slightly lighter in that it wasn't like, sure. you know, an unsolved- I didn't have to give a... Disclaimer. There was no trigger warning. Again, like it was, it, I think that although a lot of triggers were pulled, good night and good night. Anyway, <laughs> I think that's why maybe my brain just was in a in a lighter place than when we're usually, sure. when we're talking about unsolved cases, I'm in it going like, oh, yes, I got to try. you're trying to solve it. And this right. one, it's been solved and just bumbling. Yeah. Well, and then my, this brings me to my next, co- this is my next comment. And I'm just going to say this, and I'm not stereotyping by genders whatsoever. Everybody of any gender could potentially do this. But the fact that this bunch of young dummies didn't get gas on the way to the heist, I can't. You guys, that's such an integral part of this is being able to get away. Yeah, Yeah, they really didn't think it through. Nope. And then I just started thinking about like, imagine if it was if it was your partner, your husband or something, and you're just being like, God damn it. Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, I get um, <clears throat> Where am I now? Uh, bullet-riddled Santa coat. This makes me think of that new David Harbour Santa movie. Have you seen that yet? Oh, did you see Barbarian? It's new. I watched it today. I kind of liked it. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I have not seen either, but I want to see that David Harbour one. Has it come out yet? So bad. I don't know. I, I don't thought that I thought at first it was Netflix, but then I think it's coming to theaters. Might still be Netflix. I, maybe they're so, I don't know. co-proing. Who knows? But if if they're gonna do it, it better be like Spirited, where it came out and then a week later it comes out to streaming services. Yeah, yeah. Then I wrote W F Parsley. If ever I've heard a name that sounds like a real-life Ralph Wiggum type. Oh, my God. That's what I wrote down. Thank you. 
WF Parsley. It's just like such yeah. a yeah. yeah. Um, then you brought you brought up Josephine Heron was told if things go wrong, send JT Vic. And then I wrote Vic, Michael Vic, fuck Michael Vic. The fact that that man could commit the atrocities that he did to those dogs, both personally and as a result of his dogfighting ring, and he's yeah. still worth millions and has a job right now working as a sportscaster is just proof that this this society loves a comeback, and even when they shouldn't. Yep. And I'm going to say something that I rarely say on the show. Usually it's Christy saying the bold things. Fuck you, Michael Vic. I hope you fucking oh. rot. I read a book. Don't. Same with you, Groucho. Yeah. <laughs> Again. Oh, I don't know it. why I'm so hard on Groucho. It's apparently a thing I'm trying to make stick. Yeah, he was a dick too. But but Michael Vick, honestly, he should be rotting in prison for the shit that he did. Because a yes. lot of people have the perception that he ran the dogfighting ring, which is sure. inherently awful obviously but he is there is so much blood on his hands the shit that he physically did himself with his own hands is so disgusting i yeah fuck you michael vick um lewis davis i like that name reminds me of wallace and davis wallace and davis from white christmas have you watched that yet this year this is again where the notes are going i I have not but you've seen it though i have seen it yes Love, you didn't do right by me. Ah, what a song. What a voice. My mother, uh, shout out Mother Laurel, loves Rosemary Clooney. Hey! Loves that song. Loves that dress that she wears in that song. We talk about it every year. Um, Okay. (laughs) This is is classic Ash. Classic Ash. Yeah. Uh, Now, this is a real question. On topic, believe it or not. The vigilantes, they took Marshall, they stripped him nude, put the rope around his neck. So he was hanged nude? Am I to believe this? Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's like when you hear about a case and it's like the person was stabbed 34 times and it's like, feels like overkill. That feels like really wanting to shame this person. Who, I'm not defending his crime, but not a, not a murderer, not a, not a rapist, not a pedophile. Like, there's so many things where I would understand that it's like, oh, we're real. This mob mentality is really trying to get yeah. this guy. But this, it just feels like, really? He robbed a bank or he did a couple robberies? And Jesus, okay. Not wow. a single person could say, I did see him fire a gun in the bank. But so, string him up. So it's like the only people who, like Henry, murdered the two cops. Right. Everyone else was shot by the vigilantes. Yep. Listen, it doesn't shock me. Um, (laughs) You're talking about these more recent cases. Uh, December 2009, a man dressed as Santa robbed a bank in Tennessee. He had a gun in his sack. He said he needed his money to pay his elves. And then you said, (laughs) you described him and I, I wrote down... Six foot, brown hair, loves Christmas, seems whimsical. I'm not mad at it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm kidding. I'm not going to marry this guy, but I'm just saying, like, I I like his spirit, even though he used it for for bad. I only use my joie de vivre for good. Yes. David Christopher Cotton. Cotton weary. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for that. Then you said Lake Alatuna, and that brings me back again to the case of the- Ugly Tuna Saluna. Thank you very much. Schaefer. burned in my brain. Ugly Tuna Saluna. Um, Okay. We're almost there. Uh, Then you said, 
let's talk about some good guys dressed as Santa. And immediately what I thought, immediately. With, I don't remember Channing Tatum dressing as Santa in Magic Mike. As though that was the Is only the gift possible. in the third one? Well, let me tell you. I watched that preview and they have taken some scenes from the live show. Nice. And they've put them in the movie, which I like that sure. synergy a lot. But uh, I love that in my brain, the yeah. only reason that, or the only good guy dressed as Santa could possibly be Channing Tatum in a Magic Mike film. And then, yeah, I think that this is what we're all asking for. Stripper, stripper Santa. Coming to Lifetime in 2023. You've Come got on. a package to deliver. Oh, Stop. it writes itself, for God's sake. <laughs> what it's gonna take for people to just give us <laughs> writing deals like let us write these movies yeah yeah all i want to do is write the taglines you know yeah well yeah okay yeah you don't want to write the script all right yeah <laughs> oh but honestly that is um i think that's everything i think that that was all of my thoughts which again <clears throat> none of them very uh <laughs> hopeful but well, i stand I by it uh, what a, what a ride we've yeah. been on! I mean, the last yeah. ten minutes, twenty minutes, whatever it's been, it's probably been my favorite of the show. <laughs> you know, sometimes you got to cross a line to know where it is. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Yeah, but did you have any other thoughts? I mean, for, uh, far be it for me uh, to. Oh, cut us I off. mean, I've just made sure to write down such beautiful lines as insert crudeness. <laughs> I only use my joie de vivre for good, and. <laughs> Snip, snip, bitch. <laughs> and of course, Channing Tatum, what a gift to us all. Yeah. And yeah. I don't have any old boots. <laughs> I don't have any old boots. Like, what on earth? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I, I like it. I like it a lot. Sometimes brains work in different ways at different times, and that's what yeah. my brain gave us today. And, and you know what? I apologize, and you're welcome. We're lucky for it. God bless you. Uh, and God bless you, dear listeners. And I mean that in the non-denominational, non non not a drop <laughs> of liquor, not a drop of wine, non-denominational way. Uh, I say bless all the time. Um, and I mean that in the genuine sense. Bless you uh, for being here, for listening, for coming with us on this journey. What a gift. If you haven't already, give us a follow on the socials on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at True Crime and Cocktails. On Twitter at Not Detectives. And of course, if you like some more uh, content from these two chuckleheads, go over to patreon.com slash true crime and cocktails. We have four bonus episodes a month for our top tier subscribers. We have a live monthly QA, a poll you can take part in. It's a lot of fun over there. So check it out if you're interested. And the only place for official true crime and cocktails merch is truecrewmerch.com. So check that out as well if you're interested. Christy, do you want to tell the people about next week's episode? Uh, well, I warn them, I'm going to give it the title I've personally been calling it, even though it's not the one we're probably going to use. But on the next True Crime and Cocktails, Holiday Hootenanny, Tokyo Drift. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm realizing I botched it because earlier I made a Tokyo Drift reference because I thought we'd already said it on the show. We hadn't. We've been talking about this oh, for some time. But I like it. We have. I, I've been talking about it since the second Hootenanny. And I am passionate that we, that's what we're calling it. I want it to be listed that way on the podcast <laughs> apps for life. Yeah. So that's just it. Because it was yeah, the third of like the movies, it. right? 
Yes. And that is the only reason. Does it have anything to do with it? No. Doesn't matter. It's just so funny to me. It's when we first, it's when we were doing the second one that I'm like, are we just calling it the second annual? And then I made the joke, are we going to call it Two Hoot, Two Nanny? And then I was like, oh my God, the third one needs to be Tokyo Drift. We could call it Holiday Hoot Nanny 3 Tokyo Drift. So then people will catch our drift. I'm sorry. Uh, and good night. <laughs> good night and good night. Um, <laughs> anyway, listen, if you haven't listened to our Hoot Nanny episodes, you are doing yourself a disservice. I'll tell you the number one reason. As people know who listen to this show, I tend to be the one that gets a little boozed up. Yeah. More often than the other. But sure. the one time a year, the one episode a year where, where old Ash is relatively together and christy just lets it all hang out including taking her own pants off during the record uh getting real toasty is the hoot nannies and you will not want to miss it they are a lot of fun and it's nice when we're going into the holidays um to have something uh you know that's just plain fun because there's we talk about a lot of heaviness on this show a lot of heaviness on this show and it's nice to balance it if you ask me yeah so there you go. Christy, do you want to say goodnight to the people? Good night, Channing Tatum. Good night, Channing Tatum, only dressed as Santa. 